Having asked the question, can David be restored, and seeing that the answer is uh, yes, he can be restored if he repents, then why does God approach him in this way? Why does he send Nathan, and why does Nathan tell a story, which we know is a parable, but, Nathan, but uh, David thinks is a, an actual event that is uh, taking place? Why does he use this kind of approach with David? And it's that question that I mainly want to answer tonight. We're not going to get very far into the text, but because this, this incident looms so largely on the whole landscape of the Old Testament, determining the whole direction, uh, virtually, of the nation for the next 500 years, I want us to make sure that we glean from it everything that we can. Why approach him with a parable? And I think that the answer to the question is because David must be broken. And then the corollary to that is, but he won't be broken if he is approached about this matter directly. David must be broken. Let's start with that. David must come to accept full responsibility for his actions without any excuses, without any extenuating circumstances, and not seeing this as a moment of weakness contrary to his true nature as a holy and a righteous man, what he must come to see is to see this as a real act expressing uh, not someone else or some deviation, but as expressing his true self. That he's a born sinner, practicing sinner, that he is a vile, wretched, arrogant, selfish, dishonest, perverted man. How does that work out? We'll break it down into the following categories. First of all, with his mind, David will have to come to agree with God, calling his sin, sin, seeing what it is, seeing it not as some uh, uh, momentary fling, or not as some little, uh, you know, Naughty escapade. Seeing this as a, as a, as a transgression of the law of God, as, as an action that God, uh, uh, that is abhorrent to God, that is vile, uh, that, that is, that is a, a terrible thing that, that he has done and must be convinced that that is the case, that it is all that God admits and, 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 and declares it to be. So turn over to Psalm 51, and I think you'll see there that David does come to see come to see that. And Psalm 51 helps us to understand, therefore, the nature of true repentance. Psalm 51 is written in, in response to the confrontation by Nathan, and the heading, which is probably not canonical scripture, but nevertheless ancient and informative says uh, that uh, this is a psalm of David when Nathan the prophet came to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. And I want you to notice the way that David acknowledges that the personal nature of the sin, that it is his sin. He agrees with God that this is a sin that he has committed and that he alone is responsible for it. So no, notice the use of the per personal pronouns. Be gracious to me, O God, according to thy loving kindness, according to the greatness of thy compassion. Blot out my transgressions. Transgressions are defined in terms of a law. A transgressor is, a, is one who has violated a law. 
He sees himself as a lawbreaker, having broken God's law. These are my transgressions, he says. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. Verse 3, uh, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before, before me. Against thee, thee only, I have sinned and done what is evil in thy sight. You see, he's, what he's saying here is he is saying this. These are my sins. I am the one that is responsible for this. God, you call this sin. I acknowledge that it is sin and that I am the one that is responsible for it. Then as he goes on in this passage, he then begs for mercy on the basis of his acknowledgement that this, this is, is his sin. He says, uh, he says in, again in verses 1 through 3, blot out, you see, my transgressions. Wash me. Uh, verse 2, to cleanse me. Verse 7, purify me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me to hear the joy and gladness. Let the bones which thou hast broken rejoice. Hide thy face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. You see, having acknowledged that the sin is his and that he is responsible and that it truly is sin, it's then on that basis that he goes to God and says, blot these sins out, remove them, cleanse me, cleanse me of these things. And then even further in verse 10, he asked for God to change his heart. Verse 10, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. And if you want to know the answer to the question, how could David do it? David answers that question. He says in verse 5, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and, and in sin my mother conceived me. In other words, David's problem is some, not something external to David. Not something foreign to him. This is not just a quirk. This is not just a, something that, that he did that is contrary to his nature generally. No, he sees this as an expression of his created nature. The problem is not external to David. The problem is David. He is a fallen, sinful man. He has a corrupt heart and he was born that way. He has had this problem of corruption from the very beginning. Verse 6, Behold, thou dost desire truth in the innermost being, and in the hidden part thou wilt make me know wisdom. You see, the problem, he acknowledges, it's a, it's, a, it's a heart problem. That's why then he prays in verse 10, Create in me a clean heart, O God. Why did David fall into sin? David is acknowledging that the reason why I sin is right here. The problem is within. The problem is my own heart and my own mind. And he acknowledges this. He acknowledges it's a problem of nature. It's not a problem foreign to him. It's his problem. He did it. He's responsible. And it's then on that basis, agreeing with God that he is responsible, that he has done this thing. He then pleads that God will blot out the transgression and remove his guilt from it. Again, look at the language as he pleads. Pleads, blot out my transgression. Wash me from my sin. Cleanse me from my sin. Purify me with his Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Hide thy face from my sins. See, this is somebody who's taking all of this very, very seriously. He, he has not come to that point in 2 Samuel 12. But Nathan, you see, is being commissioned by God to bring him to that point. 
David must be broken. And for David to be broken, David must acknowledge that he is responsible for what he has done. And that the problem is not external to him. It is a problem of his own choices and his own nature and his own being. And he must come to the point where he pleads with God for mercy on the basis of what he has done. You see, what the, prob the problem for most of us with our sin, if we're to learn anything from this passage, I think the problem for most of us is that when we are guilty of wrongdoing of some sort or another, we tend to make excuses for it. And I want you to think through why we make excuses. I think we make excuses because fundamentally we are self-righteous. We refuse to acknowledge the truth about ourselves. And so whenever we are guilty of wrongdoing, what we say is that that was not really me. I didn't. That was really not expressive of the person that I am. I really didn't do that. And we begin to manufacture excuses about it. You say, oh, well, I was, I was tired. Or I was uh, off guard. Or, or I faced an unexpected uh, trial or, or temptation or stress. And uh, uh, I, I would never have normally done that. And, and uh, that's not really characteristic of me. And, and uh, so when I had this problem of, of my temper, this outburst of anger and, and uh, the, 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 said the things that I did when I vented and gave expression to my, my lust as I, as I did, that was not really my, me, me that did that. That was not typical of me. And so what we're really saying is my sin was not really my sin. That's somehow, somehow not really me that was involved in that. Do you see that that's what we're doing when we're making excuses for our actions? You see that when we qualify and we begin to explain away those outbursts, those sins, those transgressions of the law of God, we begin to make excuses for them and say that uh, this and that about that. Don't you see that we're, what we're really saying is that I'm not responsible. Our, isn't it self-righteousness on our part? that is behind our refusal to acknowledge the full weight of our transgression? And doesn't that then keep us from true repentance? Because we're not really agreeing with God that we're responsible for the thing that we've done. So, you know, we, uh, we, of course, are amateurs at child rearing, but one thing that we try to, to do, and I think everybody's an amateur when it comes to raising children, is there just are no excuses that are acceptable. When you break the rules, you broke the rules. There are no excuses. You may, you may begin to explain, but there aren't going to be any excuses that are accepted for, for your explanation. You hit your little brother or hit your little sister, and you know you're to never do that. If you've done it, there's no excuse. I don't care how far you've been pushed or tempted or, or stressed or whatever the case may be, there is no excuse that is acceptable. You've done it. And I hope by doing that to communicate the fact that we are responsible for what we do. And the, the, this, uh, this uh, finesse that we show at explaining away our outbursts of anger, our cruel and cutting words, the, the, uh, the expressions of our lust and anger that we, uh, uh, that, that, that we release 
our, 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 our thieveries, our cheating, our jealousies, our envies, all the rest, the more that we try to say, well, that was just something that happened because I was uh, tired and stressed and not up to the task and faced this, this special thing and, and that, the more that we are refusing to acknowledge that we are sinners and responsible for our actions the way that David comes to do here as Nathan drives him, drives him to that point. We are responsible for what we do. And if there's to be true repentance, God-pleasing repentance, and God-received uh, repentance, then we have got to stop making excuses. And like David in Psalm 51, acknowledge these are my transgressions, my iniquities. These are my actions. I am responsible for them. Moreover, they are expressions not of something foreign to me. Rather, that little stress or that... Uh, the tiredness or whatever that was the occasion in which I was guilty of the transgression, in fact, was just the occasion in which my true self was allowed to come out. Not a different self, a foreign self, but actually that was the occasion for my true self to come out. And it's only by the grace of God that it's all restrained all the other times. That's the way to look at this. It's not that we occasionally give expression to things that are contrary to our true nature. It's just that most of the time our true nature is suppressed by the grace of God. And so when we try to hide these things, explain them away, we are really claiming for ourselves a righteousness that is false. And I think not quite as open to the righteousness of Christ that is received by faith as we ought to be because we don't have need of it. We want to keep telling people it wasn't really me. That was not really me who did that thing. That's not the spirit of David and that's not the spirit of true repentance. True repentance comes to agree in the mind with God and acknowledging that the transgression is a transgression for which I am guilty and from which I deliverance because I need deliverance because it proceeds right from my heart. That heart that, that was constituted at the point of conception in the womb of my mother. Absolutely expressive of who I am and what I am. That's really what David is saying. This sin with Bathsheba was expressive of that which was of David's nature from the time he was conceived. So the prayer created me a clean heart, O oh God. Transform this wicked nature of mine and bring it under reins. And then secondly, with the emotions. Not only must David be broken in the sense that he agrees with God that he is responsible for this act that is a sinful act. Secondly, he must come emotionally to be broken, grief-stricken, humble and contrite about what he has done. Look at some of the, uh, the, the things that he says again back in Psalm 51. He says, I know my transgression and my sin is ever before me. There's a man who's tormented by what he's done. And it's not somebody who said, oh, I'm sorry. Uh, oh, yeah, by the way, God, uh, uh, sorry I did that. I slipped up. Uh, you know, 
That doesn't work with God any more than it works with uh, people. How do you feel when somebody has, uh, you know, come up and virtually slapped you across the face and uh, insulted you and uh, stomped on you, and then they come up and say, oh, oh sorry, sorry, by the way. Uh, hope, hope there's no problem with that. Uh, didn't mean anything by it. Then they walk off, superficially acknowledging that what they did was wrong. It doesn't, it doesn't heal the wound, does it? It's not genuine. It's not sincere. With true repentance, there is not only an intellectual agreement with God that the sin is a sin and I'm responsible for it, but there is also the emotional dimension of grief, brokenness, humiliation over what, it, what has happened. And so David says, my sin is ever before me. This thing is following me around wherever I go, tormenting my conscience. There's a man who's taken his sin seriously. He's not just sloughing this thing off. It is burdening him. It is plaguing him. He is wrestling with it. Look at verse 8. Make me to hear joy and gladness. Let the bones which thou hast broken. Obviously that's metaphorical. But you see what he's saying here. This is, this is like God has, has just taken him over his knee and broken him in two over this. It's as though his, his, his body was shattered by the impact of what he's done and by the burden of guilt and grief that he's carrying with him. And his joy is gone, his gladness is gone, and he's crying out, Oh, Lord, restore those to me. Make me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones which you have broken rejoice. He goes on then in verse 13. Or rather, 12, restore to me the joy of thy salvation and sustain me with a willing spirit. David, David is a man who emotionally has been through the ringer over his sin. This is not something that he has dealt with in a, in a momentary or a light or a superficial manner. Once confronted, once broken, and once he began to see the sin for what it was, that, that sin became an enormous burden to him, causing him great grief, virtually tormenting his soul. So, so, so disappointed was he, so discouraged was he, so repulsive was the whole thing to him. You know, and at this point you might say to David, David, was it worth it? A few moments of uh, thrilling violation of God's commandments. Stolen water is sweet, isn't it? Was it worth it? As your conscience uh, rips and tears at you, are you glad that you, that, that you did it? Look at James 4, lest you think this is just Old Testament stuff. stuff. James 4, verses 8 and 9 and 10. James there says to those who are caught in their sin, Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Think at this. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter to be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the presence of God and he will exalt you. See, it's the same requirement. It's the same thing. Wherever there is true repentance, you think about the people that you love the most, 
the people that are closest to you. When you when you come to realize that you have passed through what for you was a moment of blindness, when you, when you weren't really seeing the full implications of the thing that you were doing, and you realize how you have brought pain and hurt and sorrow to them and disappointed them, you think about the way that you feel after you have done that and you have, been, you have become repentant over, over what, what you have done. How that you go to them and you, you seek out anything that you can do to restore that relationship. And if it's your wife or your husband, you, you, you just do anything that you can. What can I do to please you? What can I do to make it up? How can I restore our fellowship? How can I make things right? Just name it and I'll do it. Whatever it takes, I'm willing to do it to restore it. Well, that's the way it is with God. You become so grief-stricken over what you have done, so remorseful, so broken and humiliated over it. And it's healing, isn't it? When, yours, when your loved one sees you then acting in that manner, coming to you broken and grief-stricken over what they have done to violate the relationship, really that's all that it takes, isn't it? I mean, whatever it is, that's all that it takes. And when you don't see that, you step back from it and you say, you know, that's all that it would take. If only they would come to me and be genuinely sorry that they've hurt me like they have. If only I saw something of that. Isn't that the way you feel? If only they would, they, they, they would feel at the depths that I have felt the pain of their transgression, the pain of the violation of our, of our relationship. Came to me mournful, sorry, broken over what they have done. The reason why you seek that is because true repentance involves both an acknowledgement in my head that I have done what is wrong, but also in a, a form of emotional restitution where I enter into the grief that I have caused and the humiliation that results. And then thirdly, for David must be broken in his will. So why the parable? Because David must be broken. David must be broken mind, will, and emotions. In his will, there must be a change of ways, a change of behavior, a turning. And he acknowledges this as well, verse 13. Uh, calling out in verse 12 that he be restored. He then says, then I will teach transgressors thy ways, and sinners will be converted to thee. In verses 16 and following, he speaks then of the sacrifices that he will uh, present to God. Uh, the sacrifice in verse 17 of a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. And he speaks there of, uh, back in verse 13, of sinners being uh, converted. So this whole teaching and worshiping, and, and uh, he speaks there of a restoration of, of a right relationship with God and beginning again to do the right things, changing his ways, uh, heading again in, in the right direction of, back on the narrow path that leads to life rather than remaining on the broad path that leads to destruction. All right, all of that. Can David be restored? Yes, David can be restored through repentance. Why the parable? Because David must be broken. He must come in his mind and in his emotions and in his will to acknowledge what he has done. There must be a change in his thinking and emotional grief and a change in his behavior for there to be true repentance. But Nathan can't come to him directly. 
Why not? I love asking questions of text. Why not come directly? Why not just come and say, look, David, you did this, 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 and this. You're guilty. Uh, well, the reason why not, I think, admittedly speculating a little bit, uh, is all of the obvious reasons why not. The main one being pride. The David, uh, David is, after all, a prophet of God and a priest according to the order of Melchizedek. This is a man who wrote psalms, a goodly number of them. And so he's vulnerable to spiritual pride, isn't he? He's also the political leader. And so he's vulnerable to worldly pride as the great king and leader of the nation. And if Nathan comes at him and directly accuses him of this offense, he's likely to take, a, take offense and say, who are you? He could take any of a number of forms. He could just refuse to answer and have Nathan thrown out. He could deny it, saying you can't prove that I've done it or deny a part of it. He could relativize the, the uh, accusation and saying, so what, I'm a Middle Eastern king? Uh, they all do it. Uh, I'm not as bad as most of the kings. I'm pretty good compared to the Canaanite kings and uh, the other kings in the surrounding uh, kingdoms in this, uh, this region or anywhere in the world. Or he could excuse it. He could say, well, I was so lonely. Uh, my mother neglected me as a child. I was uh, hungry for feminine affection as a consequence. Uh, he could contextualize it. He could say, don't you realize how much I've done for this nation? This is just one, one, one little transgression. Come on, look at the whole record. Look at the whole record. I've done so much for this people. All right, I, I slipped up, I admit it. No big deal. Even if it is a big deal, it's not... I mean, just a sense of proportion, Nathan. Here's this mountain of accomplishments and righteousness for the sake of the kingdom of God. Here's this little transgression. Or, uh, like I said at the outset, he could deflect it. He could say, who are you to come and accuse me? What about your own life? Don't you have any sins in your life? Haven't you ever sinned? Now, doesn't the law say you shall not covet? I bet you've coveted other men's wives, and that's just as bad as uh, the action itself, isn't it? And uh, so my sins are in this area. What about your sins of the tongue? What about your sins of pride? What about your sins of overeating? Or your sins of uh, gossip? And your sins of, you know, what about those? Attempt to deflect it in that way. And so Nathan comes to him with a parable because all of us are better judges of others than we are of ourselves. And, and David is capable of rendering a right judgment as long as he knows that he's not judging himself. And doesn't know all the variables and therefore isn't aware of all the excuses that might be made by this man who has stolen the, the lamb of his, his neighbor in order to provide a meal when he had plenty of his own. And I think that when you have this great outburst of David, where he in rage, says this man deserves to die. I think you have there something of an exposure of a guilty conscience. There's more measured response in verse 6 is fourfold restitution. And so he fully acknowledges, look, anyone who would do this 
Anyone who would do such a thing deserves to be punished and punished severely for what they've done. At that point, Nathan's got him. Because Nathan has led him to utter from his own mouth the, the, the right verdict over against someone else. And then all that remains for Nathan to say is, David, you're the man who's done it. And at that point, David crumbles into a heap of dust. And shrinks down into a pit of guilt, the result of which is the beautiful Psalm 51 that we all love so much. But a man who is broken and in many ways will never recover from, from what he has done. Except that because of the thoroughness of his repentance, his sin will be forgiven, his soul will be saved, but with dire, dire temporal consequences. I guess we should close at this point except to ask yourself this question. What sin do you need to own? David had to own this sin as his own. What sin do you need to own? Which sin are you excusing? What are you rationalizing, explaining away? What are you qualifying so much that really there's nothing left to confess to God because you've already explained it all? You're not admitting you're a sinner, you're just pleading your own righteousness. What sin do you need to own as your own? Let me urge you to do so, knowing that in the Lord Jesus Christ, there is a Savior sufficient for all of our sin as we pray together.